This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our focus on God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have worked behind the scenes in the transmission and preservation of your word so that we are confident that that which we read, though, in translation is your word. That which we have in the original honestly reflects that which was originally recorded by the authors without error. And, Father, we know that this was given to us not only to inform us about our so great salvation and how to be righteous before you through the imputation of our Lord's righteousness to us and our justification, but how we as justified people should live before you. And all that you have provided for us in Christ is revealed to us, especially in these Uh, This epistle we're studying in Colossians where we come to understand more fully the wealth that is ours in Christ and the sufficiency that is ours in him, sufficiency of grace, sufficiency of your word, and above all, the sufficiency of his work on the cross. And now, Father, as we study your word, may our thinking be challenged and clarified and focused that we might come to a better understanding of what we have in Christ and how that should transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Ira Yates was a Texan whose life reads like a Texas myth or Texas legend. He was born in Texas in 1859. His father was killed when he was about five years old, and seven years later, at the age of 12, he and his brothers were orphaned. But unlike the many today, many children today, they were not left without uh, having been trained. His, he and his brothers had already spent much time working on local ranches and farms, digging out peanuts in order to help provide for the needs of his of his family. Following the death of his mother, he was hired by Mr. J. Thompson to work on his ranch. The nanny that the Thompson family had hired to educate their children also educated uh, Ira Yates. He learned to read and to write. Uh, His mother had instilled in him the virtues of frugality. And even though as a ranch hand or cowboy at that time, he would not have made more than about 30 or $40 a month, he managed to save from what he made enough so that by the time he was 19, he was beginning to buy and sell cattle. He used some of the money he earned from that to buy some land, and over the next 20 years, he worked as a cattleman. He owned several ranches, livery stores, butcher shops, and even was a city marshal for a time in San Angelo. In 1913, he bought a dry goods store in Rankin, Texas, where he turned a pretty good profit, but he really wasn't a storekeeper. So when he was approached in 1915 by a rancher who wanted to trade him 16,000 acres out near Pecos, Texas, for his uh, dry goods store, he jumped at the opportunity, even though the land didn't really seem to be very good. It was the, the water was a little bit tainted, and there were some other other problems with the land. But in his heart, he was a rancher. So over the next 
eight or nine years, he struggled to make a living, and he was frequently in debt and never quite made a go of it. Then he went into a deal with the predecessor of what is now known as Marathon Oil Company, and they offered him an opportunity to drill. And when they drilled in 1926 and hit oil, it was at that time the largest oil find that had ever been made in Texas. Overnight, he discovered that all along he had been rich. All along he had been wealthy. He just didn't know how to access the wealth and the riches that he had and convert it into personal wealth. For those of you who understand how Texas education works, there is a fund that funds the Texas education system, and that was established by Ira Yates. So there are many blessings that came out of his out of his wealth. Well, just as Ira Yates already possessed wealth and riches and had to learn how to access them, the same is true for Christians. We, at the instant we are saved, at the instant that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, what is known as the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, from that instant we are given all the blessings in heaven, we're given everything pertaining to life and godliness, and we are given the what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's ours. But very few Christians know what those riches are or how to access them. And if I were to ask you, what do you think they are or ought to be, and where would you start, I doubt that any of us would start where Paul starts, which tells us that we don't think right. We don't think at the right starting point. We want to start with way out here in terms of application rather than starting with an understanding of what we actually have in Christ and what God did for us not only at the cross but also in terms of our own personal salvation. I've often said that if you ask the Apostle Paul how to brush your teeth, he would start with God's eternal existence and then his creative activity because he wants to make sure that you understand that teeth are not there by accident. They're the result of the creative work of God, and they have been specifically designed by him, and therefore we, to take proper care of them, we have to understand uh, that they are a creation of God. Paul writes to the Colossian church while he is in prison in Rome. He wrote four prison epistles. He wrote Philemon, which was personal, uh, to Philemon, asking him to not hold uh, a slave's escape against him, Onesimus, and recognize that Onesimus was now a brother in Christ, and Paul was pleading with Philemon to uh, release Onesimus from his from his slavery. But the other three epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, are written to churches. And it's interesting to study the themes of these three prison epistles as Paul wrote them while he is uh, in, under house arrest in Rome awaiting a trial before Caesar as he has appealed to Caesar from the kerfuffle that occurred in Jerusalem. And you're familiar with the story of his uh, travels to Rome, the shipwreck, etc. And now he is there in his first imprisonment. He has no idea how this is going to how this is going to end up. He has no idea what the, this, uh, the end result will be. And the first epistle that he wrote to the Philippians was to express his gratitude for their gift to them, and he, he emphasizes the joy that we should all have and that he has in the Lord that is unrelated to whatever is going on in our life, whether I uh, have abundance or whether I suffer loss. Paul says, I can do all things. In other words, I can handle any circumstance through Christ Jesus my Lord. In the Ephesian epistle, he begins in the first two chapters talking about our understanding the, all of the aspects of the plan of the Father, the provision of the Son, and the promise of the Holy Spirit, and, tra- and providing us with a free grace, a grace gift, not by works, salvation. And the impact that this has in breaking down the barrier between Jew and Gentile so that now we are united in Christ. In the second half of Ephesians, starting in chapter 4, he emphasizes how that transforms our day-to-day life, what is covered under the metaphor of walking in, in the Scriptures. 
So Ephesians, in a real sense, is about understanding our riches in Christ, which Paul introduced in uh, the passage I read this morning, Ephesians 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ and how that impacts our day-to-day life or our walk. That's the same theme as Colossians, but there are little differences. They're not just repetitions of each other. They are two sides of the same coin, so it's helpful to study how they uh, complement each other and how they build off of each other. Colossians also begins with a focus on our riches in Christ, but the focus is more on Christ. As we studied in the introduction in the first chapter down to uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 3, Paul wants to make sure we understand who Jesus Christ is and all that he is and all that he's provided for us so that when he gets into the main body of the epistle, we understand that, that Christ really can be sufficient because he is fully God. And that because Jesus Christ is fully God, he's not some lower entity. He's not just a uh, an emanation from God, which was a popular view in the uh, uh, early church as an influence of, of uh, Platonism, but that Christ is fully, fully God. And because he is fully God, he is sufficient. That means we don't need anything but the Bible to face and handle the issues of life. And throughout the history of the church, there's always been an attack on that doctrine of sufficiency. There's always something else that can be added in order to make sure we feel more saved, we feel more spiritual. In the early church, there were hostile groups, uh, some of whom were came out of a, a Jewish background. We call them Judaizers, and they said it's great to trust in Jesus for salvation, but if you really want to have uh, uh, good, you secure your salvation and know that you have all the blessings of God, you have to also be circumcised. You have to enter into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant through circumcision, just like Abraham did. And so there was that emphasis of circumcision. And in, in this uh, melting pot of ideas that was, uh, the note that's known as the Colossian heresy, some of those uh, Jewish ideas are mixed with early uh, pre-Gnostic ideas from the Greek culture, and all of this kind of gets mixed up into a, uh, a stew of mysticism and a lot of hum- human viewpoint types of thinking. And for a lot of folks, that stuff works. Last time I pointed out, today in our culture, we have, uh, the, the, from the 19th century, the prophets of, uh, of uh, Darwin and Marx and um, Herbert Spencer and soci- uh, sociology, and then... Uh, uh, Madame Helena uh, Blavatsky and her uh, the- theosophical movement, the mysticism, and how today we're the heirs of those people of the late 19th century and those ideas, uh, Freud and his psychology, all saying that somehow, uh, first of all, life really isn't that special. It's just a cosmic accident, so you're no, no more significant or no more important than that rock outside. You're both accidents of, of uh, evolution. And then if you want to really have joy and happiness and really have a healthy emotional life, you just have to follow Freud. Or, and if you want to have a, a really a healthy society, you follow Marx. All of these ideas are still present with us in much more sophisticated and developed forms. And so you have Christians today who are easily tempted to thinking that somehow by they can combine elements from these human viewpoint worldly ideas especially Freud from psychology and Spencer from sociology, we can combine those with the Bible and we can even have a better, more stable Christian life. And what you've just done is destroyed your Christian life because just as salvation is by Christ alone, living the Christian life is by Christ alone. That's what sufficiency means. And so Paul is really... Uh, punching this, and we ha- and and the way to understand sufficiency is to explore what it means to have what what it means to be in Christ, and the riches that we have in Christ. Last time we looked at we looked at verses uh, uh, nine and ten mostly, and today we're going to shift and go forward into uh, uh, eleven and twelve as the groundwork for understanding our uh, provision, our riches in Christ. 
We saw that back in verses 6 and 7, the main command in the main body of this epistle is, as you receive Christ, which was by faith alone in Christ alone, so walk in him, which means by faith alone in Christ alone. Not by faith in Christ plus good works, Christ plus certain motivational techniques or psychological techniques or whatever uh, religious techniques or whatever it might be. It's Christ alone. That's the command. Now we're being told how to implement that. Now there's a warning in verse 8. One verse for the warning to beware of the seduction of the false teachers, false teachers of that time, false teachers of this time, who seek to plunder the riches that we have in Christ the piracy of the false teachers. And then in verse 9, we get into this profound development of rich, rich doctrine that lays a foundation for understanding how we are to live. We don't get into more what people today, they always want to jump. Give me the practical stuff, don't give me the theory. In the Bible, practical stuff without theory is legalism. Always remember that, telling people how to do the right thing without telling them the grace basis for doing the right thing is nothing but Phariseeism. It's legalism to the core. Anybody can go out and have a superficial moral life, but only a Christian who understands grace and what we have in Christ can really experience the blessings that are ours in Christ. So this is why Paul reemphasizes after the first chapter, he reminds his readers in verses 9 and 10 of what we have in him. I want you to notice three times we have this phrase repeated, in him. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. Complete doesn't mean 90%. 95%, 98%. Complete is complete. 99.9 is incomplete. So in him we've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority or principalities and powers, as it's translated in the uh, King James. And so I looked at that at the end last time. And then third he says, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then the next verse, which is not on the slide, having disarmed principalities and powers. We have that phrase again. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So the foundation of this development here is understanding that we're in him, we're in Christ. Now, the next thing I want you to notice in terms of repetition of words is this word circumcision, this word circumcision. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, three times in that verse, and then in verse 13 we have the word uncircumcision. So understanding circumcision is significant to understanding what Paul is saying in these verses. Now, today we're just going to primarily look at verses 11 and 12 because when Paul starts to help us understand what it means that Jesus is sufficient, where would you start? Paul starts with spiritual circumcision. Now, if you don't start with understanding what spiritual circumcision is, which is basically the baptism by the Holy Spirit, if that's not your starting point, then your starting point's not biblical. And if you don't start at the right place, are you going to end up at the right place? I don't think so. So we have to learn to think as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to think because this is where the starting point is. This isn't just some theoretical doctrine. This is, as Paul puts it, this is the foundation to understand our riches in Christ and all that we have in him, because that's the foundation for our walk in him. 
and to experience all of the joy that we have. Remember, Paul is sitting there under house arrest and awaiting the decision of Caesar, and who knows how arbitrary that may be, and the circumstances around him are not the most pleasant. And what Paul says in these three prison epistles, in Philippians, it's about the joy of living in in both Ephesians and Colossians, it's about understanding our riches in Christ and how that transforms our life. And what Paul is helping us understand, what he has come to understand, is that our happiness, our joy, our stability, the richness of our life is not dependent on Caesar or circumstances. It's dependent upon Christ and Christ alone. So he warn, gives the warning in verse 8, which is just a quick warning, one verse. But as we go forward, we understand that the next verses really go back to something he has said earlier in this chapter. He warns us against being cheated or plundered through the philosophy and empty deceit. And I pointed out those are... That's a. Uh, the, the deceitfulness of philosophy, not philosophy as we understand it, but false philosophies and religions of life that are based on the traditions of man and the principles of the world. And just remember, the world is very attractive, and the world has solutions that appear to work for a while, and they might make your life better. And for a while, you might have real joy and happiness because if your goals are worldly goals, then worldly methods will give you a measure of happiness, but it's not the happiness that we have in Christ or that has been given to us in Christ. The world, remember, is not your friend, but it often masquerades as your best friend. Well, to understand what Paul's about to say, I want to take us back to verse 2 earlier in the chapter where he expresses what he wants them to know. He's coming to the end of his introduction. He says at the beginning of verse 1, I want you to know something about his conflict, but it also ends in the result that he wants them to learn, that their hearts might be encouraged being knit together by means of love and attaining to all the riches of the conviction. Uh, not full assurance. Assurance is not partial. As I pointed out in our study in Romans, that word really means just a conviction that something is true. But that conviction comes from understanding something. So un- always understanding something taught in the Word. From understanding, and then you use this, the, the next clause is introduced by a Greek preposition which indicates you're moving to a goal, you're moving in a direction, you're driving for something. And uh, so that's why I put in brackets, moving toward. That's something the, the conviction from understanding is part of a process that's driving us to an ultimate goal in terms of Christian maturity. And so it's moving us towards the knowledge, the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, this word that's translated uh, knowledge in verse 2 is a Greek word, epinosis. Now, the normal word for just knowledge that can mean academic knowledge or superficial knowledge or an awareness of something is the word gnosis. When the prefix epi is added to it, it intensifies the meaning of the word. And Spiros Zodiades says this about the significance of epinosis over gnosis. It says that epinosis expresses a more thorough participation in the acquiring of knowledge on the part of the learner. You're not just learning it academically, you're learning it and you're applying it. In the New Testament, he says, it often refers to knowledge which very powerfully influences the form of religious life, a knowledge laying claim to personal involvement. It's not just something out there that you know, but it is becoming part of your experiential reality. That's the significance of epinosis. So understanding starts off with your the academic process of coming to know something, and then it moves to epinosis as we believe it and under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who is transforming it into uh, usable knowledge. And as we use it, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our life to bring about 
character and life transformation. But here it's specified as the knowledge related to the mystery of God. Now, some people are going to stop there and say, well, you know, God is ineffable. We just can't really know him. And that's heresy. That's blasphemy. Because God has revealed himself to us so that we can know him truly. We may not know him exhaustively, but we can know him truly. So when it talks about the mystery of God, it's not talking about the fact that God's mysterious and we can't know him. The word mystery, as we've studied many times, as it's used in the New Testament, has to do with previously unrevealed truth. It's mystery because prior to the New Testament, this truth, this doctrine, wasn't fully understood or comprehended, but new revelation has now been given through Christ and through the apostles so that we can have a greater understanding of God. He's not ineffable. He is, the Bible says, understandable, but only in terms of what he has revealed to us so that we are moving towards this knowledge, this real experiential life-transforming knowledge of this previously unrevealed truth about God. And what is that? It relates to the Father and Christ. It relates to that work of the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul comes back to this and develops it in verses 9 and 10 when he says that in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's part of that mystery that relates to God and Christ. We now understand that uh, more of the unity of Jesus and the Father and that in Jesus, all of the nature of God, as we studied in terms of the meaning of that word, dwells in him, using the word katoikeo, which Paul uses also in the parallel passage I read earlier in Ephesians 3. And verse 9 says that it is in him that dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and I, uh, we studied that word, pleroma, which indicates the, the full or completeness of something. He's not partially God. He doesn't have derivative deity. He is as fully God as God the Father. That's why that verse that uh, we usually don't sing, of O Come All Ye Faithful, says that he is very God of very God. And in the antiquated language, that means he's true God of true God. He is 100% deity. And when you compare that with Colossians, the second part of Colossians 2, 3, that we are moving toward all the riches of conviction from understanding, that we are moving toward this, this experiential knowledge of the mystery of God. That mystery of God is further defined as the fullness of the Godhead that is bodily in Christ, that in his incarnation he didn't lose any deity. He simply added humanity to it. And the, his deity was, we know from Philippians 2, he restricted it, its use in every area related to his living a human life on the basis of God's word. And then in uh, Colossians 2.10, we read that we're complete in him. That means we're sufficient. There's nothing else that needs to be added. You don't need to, be, you don't need to add baptism, circumcision, giving. You don't need to add a, a prayer life in order to be have anything more in Christ. Now, all of those are important in your spiritual life, but they don't give you anything more. Scripture says we've already been blessed with all the blessings in heaven. What you have to do is access it and apply it, not get more. How many times in, do you hear Christians say, well, I want more of the Holy Spirit? You can't get any more of the Holy Spirit. You can't get any more of grace. You can't get any more of these things. What you have to do is figure out what you've already been given and live on that basis. Now, back in what I read in Ephesians, or, or actually in Colossians, where it talks about the principalities and powers, at the end of verse, uh, uh, at the end of verse uh, ten, that we're complete in Him who's the head of all principalities and powers. This summarizes all of the angelic forces, not just the elect angels, but also the fallen angels. Ephesians 3.10 uses it that way. We get it from Ephesians 6.12 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Colossians uses it three times. So this says it's not just a matter of false views, but that these false views are empowered by Satan and the demonic forces. 
Now, in Ephesians 3.10, what I read today, I just want to point out a couple of things in terms of parallel. Notice that uh, parallel uses the, this phrase in verse 10 of the, that, that uh, God's wisdom is, might be made known through the church, that's through you, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That means that part of your spiritual growth is to be a witness to both the fallen angels as well as the elect angels of the grace of God. In verse 13, Paul goes on to challenge him not to give up because Paul's going through uh, tribulations, but the, and this leads him into this tremendous prayer starting in for, verse 14. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to what? The riches of his glory. That's ours, to be strengthened through power through his spirit and the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend, which is a word that doesn't mean comprehend. It means to attain to something. It's katalambano. It means to reach a goal. To, to attain to a certain level of maturity. And as I pointed out, unless you've memorized every verse in the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revel, through Revelation uh, 21, and unless you've memorized and can, you know, every prayer, unless you can give a doctoral dissertation on every doctrine in the Scriptures, your knowledge of the Word of God is, and mine too, is pathetic. Because we think we know a lot when we don't know a drop in an ocean of water of Scripture, even the best of us. We, we, set our, we set our ceiling too low. We set our goals too low. We need to learn as much as we can, not as much as we can to get by. And yet the average Christian today is so pathetically illiterate about the Bible that they'll never make it spiritually. Because we're to be attaining to a certain level of knowledge so that we can understand the full dimensions. That's the idea there in the imagery of the breadth and length and height and depth, the full dimensions of the love of Christ so that we may know it, gnosko, academically, and, and that knowledge of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It doesn't mean it's not based on knowledge. When it says surpassing, which surpasses knowledge, again, it's gnosis, that the love of Christ surpasses just an academic understanding. There has to be that experiential walk by means of the Holy Spirit that we may, what, be filled up to the fullness of God. There's that word again for pleroma that is, that is ours in Christ. Now, the starting point, as I said, is Colossians 2.11. Now, most of us would never start here and say, okay, if you really want to understand how to access everything you have in Christ and how to really be a mature believer, the basic point to start, basics of Christian life 101 is understanding spiritual circumcision. I bet that I've never even read a book on that, but that's where Paul starts. Now, one of the reasons he starts with this concept and phrases it this way is because this is part of the heresy package that the Colossian believers are struggling with, these Judaizers who are coming into their midst and saying, you know, you really, you, you may have salvation, you might have something, you're close to God, we'll accept all that, but if you really want the higher spiritual life, the victorious spiritual life, you want to really have everything God has for you, you got to get circumcised, because that's, that's, where you get the blessing of Abraham. And that was false teaching. So he's really going to focus on this, and now he's going to explain what real circumcision was all about, the circumcision, the physical circumcision of Abraham, the physical circumcision uh, that the Jewish people included within their, their ritual as obedience to God's command, was not an end. It was simply a training aid, a visual teaching tool that God was using to teach something different. He was telling them that it's not a physical act that's significant. It stands for a spiritual act. Now, somebody may say, well, you just get that in the New Testament. No, we don't. We get that in the Old Testament. So when we ask this question, what's all this discussion of circumcision about, we have to go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10.16, Paul says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. 
wait a minute, you didn't expect that noun to be there, did you? See, physical circumcision is the surgical removal of the foreskin of the male sexual organ, and it had a symbolic value. That didn't do anything for you spiritually. It just was a sign of being uh, obedient to the covenant, of being a part of the Abrahamic covenant, descendant of Abraham. But that physical act, even within the Mosaic law, of which Deuteronomy is a part, was taught as a, as a representation of something spiritual, something that was to happen internally in the spiritual life of the person, that the physical act didn't do anything for you spiritually, but it was designed to teach you that something needed to be separated from you in order to be able to truly live in light of the blessings of God. And so the, the issue was, spiritually, to deal with the removal of something related to the heart. Now, the removal of the flesh of the heart, that term flesh is often used in Scripture to mean the sin nature, that there must be something has to be done to break the power of the sin nature. Otherwise, we're just going to keep doing the same thing we've always done and living in the power of the flesh and living in the power of the sin nature. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Paul says, the Lord your God will circumcise, talking about the future application of what comes to be known as the new covenant. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In other words, what Paul says in terms of spiritual circumcision in Romans and in Colossians and in Galatians isn't new. He's just unpacking what was already there in the Old Testament. So he's telling the Colossian believers in verse 11, he says, in him, in Christ. So it's going to be related to being identified with Christ and being in union with Christ. It's in him you were, past tense, also circumcised with the circumcision that's made without hands. That means it's not physical, it is spiritual. The word there translated, you were also circumcised, is an aorist tense, indicating he's talking about something that has already occurred. It's, it's in the past. He's not talking about its beginning, its duration, its completion. He's just simply summarizing it as something that has been in the past. And that it was accomplished by means of something, using the Greek preposition in plus the dative, which indicates the way in which an act is accomplished, instrumentality, you were circumcised by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, not the physical foreskin, but something referred to as the sins of the flesh. The sins, if flesh means sin nature, and it does, that it is, that spiritual circumcision has something to do with putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And this word, putting off, Apeg duce indicates the idea of putting something off, stripping it off, or removing something. So how is this removed? Does it mean that after you're saved, you're sinless? No, it doesn't mean that. Because it doesn't change the internal power of the sin nature. It just changes your relationship to it. But as Paul develops in Romans 6, before we are saved, we can only do one thing. We can only operate on the basis of the sin nature. The sin nature can produce relative good. It can produce morality, but not spirituality. The sin nature can do a lot of relatively good things. It does a lot of evil. But it's still the work of the flesh and has no value before God. After we're saved, at the point of salvation, the power of the sin nature is broken. Now we have a choice. Before we're saved, all you can do is say yes to the sin nature. After you're saved, you can say yes to obedience to God. And as Paul develops in Romans 6, now you have freedom to serve Christ. And now we are supposed to because the power of the sin nature has been broken. Now, how did that happen? Well, that's why you have to go on to verse 12. Because verse 12 tells us how it took place. How did this happen? 
And, and we have to understand this because even though this is non-experiential, when you were saved, you didn't experience any of this. You didn't say, oh, wasn't that great? I just got circumcised spiritually. The only way you come to know this is by reading the Word. And when you read the epistles in the New Testament, Paul tells you, okay, now you got saved. Now, you didn't experience all of this. All you knew is you trusted in Jesus. But you know at the instant you were justified, you got a new nature, you were regenerated, didn't feel a thing, but it was there. You, you received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You didn't feel a thing, but you, were, you got it. And because of that, you were declared just. The Holy Spirit took up residence inside of you and made your body a temple for the dwelling of Jesus Christ. You didn't feel a thing, but it's there. Now that you understand these realities, we have an obligation. And that is because we're a new creature in Christ, we're to live like a new creature in Christ. And part of the dynamic that happened at salvation is we refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's always used, always uses the same phraseology in Greek, which uses an in preposition plus a Greek and technically should be translated baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. So Colossians 2.12, Paul begins by telling us what this spiritual circumcision is. It is being buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what does it mean to be buried with him in baptism? You know, a lot of people, as soon as they see the word baptism, they immediately think of getting wet. They immediately think of believer's baptism. This has nothing to do with ritual baptism. The Bible speaks of eight different kinds of baptism. I'm going to run through these very quickly. Uh, most of you know these already. That first of all, there were three ritual baptisms. A ritual baptism was a baptism whereby the person got wet. Okay, John the Baptist baptism, where he baptized Jewish believers related to a Jewish message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then there were, and that's in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, when Jesus showed up, Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist, but not with the baptism of John the Baptist. Because the baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism to repent from your sin. Jesus didn't have any sins to repent from, so Jesus' baptism was a unique baptism. See, the word baptism means literally to immerse, plunge, or dip, but it had a symbolic significance, which is that something was identified with something else. And so Jesus, before he begins his ministry, undergoes this unique baptism because he's identifying himself as the, as the Messiah who will bring in this kingdom that John is proclaiming. So the second ritual baptism is the baptism of Jesus Christ, and the third ritual baptism is the baptism for believers. When we are... Uh, plunged, immersed in water. It is a picture. It is a physical training aid, like circumcision, to teach us about a spiritual baptism that took place the instant you trusted in Christ as Savior. The the five dry baptisms, non-ritual baptisms, are first of all the baptism of Moses. The Jews who went through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10.2 says they were baptized into Moses. Then there's the baptism of fire. John announced that one was coming after him, that is Jesus, who had baptized with water and baptized with fire. The fire was judgment. That comes at the, during the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. Then Jesus spoke of his own baptism at the cross. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Speaking of the cross, Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. Then there was the baptism of Noah. In that baptism, the ones who got wet were the ones who died. See, baptism doesn't always have to do with getting wet. The ones who were identified with Noah were the ones on the ark, and they survived. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And then the last one is the one that this passage is talking about, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, identified in Matthew 3, 11 to 12, and in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we have all been baptized by the Holy Spirit uh, in one baptism, baptized into Christ. The word buried is the word suntapto, uh, which means to bury. Simple word, to get buried. It's a, an aorist passive participle. Now, the grammar here is really important because how does this word buried relate to the main verb? 
because it doesn't have an article with it in the Greek, which doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but it is important for understanding this passage, trust me, it means it's adverbial. That, an adverb modifies what? Let's go back to fifth grade. An adverb modifies a verb. So you've got to find the main verb. Well, the main verb is back in verse 11. You were circumcised. So what's the relationship to this participle, to that verb? Well, first of all, you have a time issue. Aorist participles usually precede the action of the main verb. But sometimes when the main verb's an aorist, it's, it's happening at the same time, which I think this is happening at the same time. And since the main verb is you were circumcised, the answer, this, this statement answers the question of how they were circumcised. So it's telling us means they were circumcised by being buried with him in baptism. That's how they were circumcised. So this is, this is very simple in the Greek, but it's left ambiguous in English. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by being buried with him in baptism. That's not water baptism. This is spiritual baptism. Remember, it's the circumcision made without hands. It's very clear this isn't physical. So we're buried with him uh, by being buried with him in baptism. And let me jump through this. I duplicated this. And then we have that phrase, into baptism. Buried with him by means of baptism. In baptism, that's the same phrase you always have in the Greek. Greek, it's an instrumental dative indicating that this shows the means of how you were buried. You were buried by means of baptism. Now, to understand this, we just have to go back to Romans chapter 6. Let me just read this very briefly for you. Paul raises a rhetorical question in verse 1. How shall we, or should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin, see, that's that death and burial. We died to sin at the instant of faith in Christ. How can we who died to sin live in it anymore? Very practical question. Paul says, here's the answer. Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized, that means identified with Christ, uh, into Christ Jesus, were baptized, that is identified in, with his death. Therefore, what? We were buried. Same word. Synthopto, that we have in Colossians 2.12. We were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. See, it's that being raised, identified with Christ's resurrection, that means because of that happened, we have to live differently. We live in a new life. In verse 5, he goes on to say, For if we, and we have, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, because we know this, that our old man, that is the sin nature, was crucified with him. That happened when we trusted in Christ as Savior. For the purpose that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, For listen to this, he who has died, which happened with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, have been freed from the power of the sin nature. In other words, when we sin, we're just saying, okay, I want to voluntarily become a slave to my sin nature again. I don't have to, but I want to voluntarily do that. It's my job. Paul uses it in a similar way in Galatians 5.24. He says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, that is the sin nature with its passions and desires. So this baptism means that we're baptized simply into Christ. That's what circumcision means. So let's put it on a chart that we've seen many times. At the instant you trust Christ as Savior, there are two things that are happening simultaneously, two realms. One has to do with your eternal realities. The other has to do with your day-to-day experience. We're just going to focus on the eternal here. I made it a circle of light because of white because we're now in the light. We are children of light positionally. This is referred to as being in Christ. How do we get there? We get there because the Holy Spirit, at the instant we trust in Christ as Savior, Scripture says Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us, to unite us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are placed in him. In him, and that's where all the riches are. They're not on the experiential side. That's where we learn to appropriate them. 
The in him is this is where we have them. They're given us at the instant you trusted Christ, you were given an unlimited spiritual bank account. And most Christians live as if that doesn't exist. They're just just like uh, when, when I uh, spoke earlier of Ira Yates. They're they're living on 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 the land and they're totally aware unaware of the wealth that's underneath it. This is called positional truth, coming to understand what we have in Christ, so that we can live the kind of life that God has for us. So, to understand your riches. You have to start by understanding what happened at salvation. You have to understand this spiritual circumcision that that surgically removed the tyranny of the sin nature from your life. Understanding that means that now we're not going to, we don't have to live as slaves to the sin nature, but we need to live as those who have been freed from the sin nature. So Paul says that We were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by being buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That grounds our present experience of newness of life in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to to be reminded of the depths of your word and of the profound teachings that are here and the the way in which all of Scripture uh, intersects and complements one another and that that, um, in your word you tell us all that you have given us and that it's on the basis of that that we can have real life, new life, the abundant life, that Jesus came to give us. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who may not be sure of their eternal life, may not be confident of their eternal destiny, may not be uh, sure of their relationship with you, and that Scripture makes it clear that we can be sure, we can be confident, we can know what our destiny is, and the solution is simple. It's to believe in Jesus Christ. When we believe in him, instantly we are given the righteousness of Christ, declared justified and regenerate. We're given God the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We're made a new creature in Christ, and we're given the unsearchable riches of Christ. That can never be taken away from us. It is ours forever, and it is based on one and only one thing, and that is believing that Jesus died for us. If we add anything to it, we destroy it. If it's anything less than that, doesn't accomplish it. It's only one thing that matters, the work of Christ. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon what we study today and as we think through the implications of this in our own lives, as God the Holy Spirit uh, uses this to make this truth real in our lives, we pray that we might be responsive to it and that we might come to understand what it really means to be free from the power of the sin nature and the potential that you have given us to exploit all these riches, all the wealth that is ours in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.